Alrighty, last time we ended <clears throat> with uh, <clears throat> speaking of uh, Barton W. Stone and uh, his uh, evolution of coming through or coming out of the darkness of denominationalism and they settled on this uh, one thing that uh, they settled on and what we talked about last time was this idea of baptism. And uh, Barton Stone had... Uh, come to the understanding, the proper understanding of what baptism was, uh, uh, the forgiveness of sin, uh, adding, adding one to the Lord's church, and without it you could not be saved, but <clears throat> he didn't push that that much. He didn't push uh, uh, the, uh, the idea of baptism, uh, and he had still some doubts in his mind, so he didn't press the point that much, though he understood what it was. And... Uh, so we talked about his going to different places and preaching in different areas and pleading with people and coming uh, into contact with what he had seen for so many years, the, the mourner's bench and, and different things like that. And, and at one point he stood up and he said, Brethren, we must be doing something wrong because God wants to forgive us and no doubt these mourners want to be forgiven, but they can't have any relief. And so then he began to talk about what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. And of course that didn't <clears throat> strike everyone as uh, uh, in the same way that it did Barton W. Stone. Some people began to feel a little upset about it. And uh, you know he felt like that uh, the audience became kind of cool once he began to talk about baptism. <clears throat> now... Uh, that happens, doesn't it? A lot of uh, people begin to hear the truth and they uh, don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to believe it and they don't want to be shackled by the laws that God has set forth. So they do kind of become cold toward uh, religion, don't they? Or or the Lord's church and maybe they go off into another direction. And uh, Paul talked about that to Timothy. You know, he said there would come a time when false teachers are going to arise because people are going to uh, have itching ears, he said. They want their ears scratched in such a way that uh, they're hearing what they want to hear. People do not like to hear that they're wrong, and uh, which I understand that. I don't think any of us like to hear we're wrong, but we have to have the understanding that, well, if we're wrong, we need to do some things about that and, and alter what's causing us to be wrong, right? <clears throat> and as we've studied uh, Barton W. Stone, his life, we see him... Going, coming out of, uh, the, the darkness of denominationalism over time. And he had that mindset that everybody ought to have. He had an open heart. When he saw the truth and the evidence was placed before him, he was willing to migrate toward the evidence. You know, and, and that doesn't happen a whole lot, does it? Doesn't happen a whole lot. And, um, but anyway, uh, we talked about another restoration preacher by the name of B.F. Hall, uh, who uh, had a relationship with Barton Stone, and he was uh, ordained to preach by Brother Stone. And he was uh, enduring some of these same conflicts about baptism. But he came across the Campbell-McKellar debate, where Alexander Campbell uh, debated the Baptist preacher McKella, and uh, he began to look at each of the arguments that Campbell put forth. He said, well, 
You know, there it is. It's plain and simple. <clears throat> and so he embraced that. And he made the statement after having been read, uh, having read the book. He said, Eureka, Eureka, I have found it. I have found it. And, uh, you know, that's kind of humorous a little bit, but isn't that wonderful that someone would, would have that reaction to seeing the truth? You know, how many of us have uh, ever been in school <clears throat> and uh, struggle with a particular thing and all of a sudden it's kind of like the light comes on and you, you understand uh, the process or the, you know, uh, wh- whatever it is you're studying and you're, you know, you're just like, wow, now I see it, I get it. Well, we ought to be like that in the religious realm, right? How many of us who uh, have ever taken a math test or taken a science test or taken a literature test or whatever, and we got the wrong answer, and then we go up and we want to argue against the facts of 2 plus 2 is 4, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Poe did pen the raven or the telltale heart. Those are facts, and we want to go argue with the with the instructor and say, wait, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. I don't think we ought to do that. Well, that's not going to get you very far, is it? But people do it in religion. And uh, so when we come to an understanding and our eyes are open, we need to be like uh, uh, B.F. Hall here. And so uh, uh, over time, after this happened, Stone continued to do his work. He established congregations uh, throughout Kentucky, and he came to... Uh, teach at a place called the Rittenhouse Academy. He began to uh, publish periodicals, and he began to write uh, his commentary on uh, uh, what he thought the Bible taught in what was called the Christian Messenger. And it began in 1826. It was a bi-monthly uh, periodical, and it became fairly popular. And... Uh, I think this was the last thing we ended on. Uh, the messenger's motto was, Let the unity of Christians be our polar star. And of course, after having laid so much groundwork and being contemporary with Alexander Campbell, it was uh, inevitable that their paths would cross at some point. And they did. And uh, they met in 1824 in Georgetown, Kentucky. They both... Uh, viewed each other very favorable. And in fact, Stone wrote this about uh, Alexander Campbell in his uh, biography. He said, I will not say <clears throat> there are no faults in Brother Campbell, but there are fewer perhaps in him than any man I know on earth. And over these few, my love would throw a veil and hide them from view forever. He said, I am constrained and willingly constrained to acknowledge him the greatest promoter of this reformation of any man living. The Lord reward him. And so he was uh, uh, an ardent supporter of the things that Alexander Campbell was doing because he, Alexander Campbell was doing, for the most part, the same things that Barton W. Stone was doing. Any comments, questions? <clears throat> well, all right. Uh, not only had he written a statement uh, in his biography about his feelings toward uh, uh, Campbell, but Barton Stone 
in the Millennial Harbinger, which was a periodical edited by Alexander Campbell, he talked about their similar beliefs, the Stone Movement and the Campbell Movement. Now this is what he said, and, and I thought that this uh, <clears throat> this says a lot about uh, Barton Stone because as much as he respected and uh, loved Alexander Campbell, if there was if there was something that needed to be pointed out, he pointed it out. Uh, he wrote this. He said the Reformed Baptists have uh, received the doctrine taught by us many years ago. Now, the, the Reformed Baptist is what Alexander Campbell's group went by initially, okay? Because uh, we're going to notice when we get over into studying about Alexander Campbell, he was a part of uh, uh, the Baptist, uh, kind of like uh, uh, Stone was of the Methodist Synod. He was, uh, Campbell was a part of that Baptist Association, and uh, but anyway, he wrote. He said uh, they've received the doctrine taught by us many years ago. Many years ago, some of us preached baptism as a means in connection with faith and repentance for the remission of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they preached the same and extend it farther than we have done. So he's giving him credit when <clears throat> Stone was a little hesitant to push the idea of the necessity of baptism for the remission of sins. Campbell's movement stood up and said, no, that's absolutely correct. And in fact, he debated McKellar about it. But he went on to say, he said, we rejected all names but Christian. That's the Stone movement. He says, now they acknowledge it most proper, that that's the correct thing to do, right? But seems to prefer another. So... <clears throat> The Campbell movement was saying, yeah, we need to be called Christians, but what were they calling themselves? Reformed Baptists. Now, uh, what does history tell us about trying to reform something when we're talking in the realm of religion? doesn't work, does it? <coughs> you can't reform when it comes to religion. You simply have to restore what God has demanded of the people. And so I, th I thought that that was a, a wonderful statement that Stone wrote in the Millennial Harbinger, and it, and it says a lot about Campbell allowing him to write it, leaving it in there, right? Because the thing that made Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone so powerful was their uh, common love for locating the truth. They weren't prideful. Right? They didn't want to, uh, you, you, we never read about Stone being upset that Campbell, for the most part, overshadowed him in the Restoration Movement. You don't hear about, uh, Campbell trying to be prideful and wanting to be the, the main guy in this movement. They all work together and they work toward the common goal. And so, <clears throat> that's what made it even possible, wasn't it? How can you have a Restoration? If everyone within that movement is wanting to make their own faction, wanting to, you know, let's be Campbellites, let's be Stoneites, let's be New Lights and Old Lights or whatever, and we're going to notice that uh, that's a statement that uh, Raccoon John Smith made when these uh, two uh, sides came together. <clears throat> but it's we don't see a lot of this attitude in today's world, do we? We just don't see it. 
because people are so prideful and they want themselves to be first, right? And that's a big issue. But that was a problem when the Catholic Church came into existence, wasn't it? It was a problem with the Reformation movement. It was a problem within the Church of England. It was a problem within the Protestant movement, protesting those things. But when we get back to the idea of restoring New Testament Christianity, now we do not see that in the characters of these people. Now, does that mean they're perfect? Well, no, I think Bart Stone said it properly. You know, particularly he was talking about Alexander Campbell, but I think we could say it about any of these great men and women who were making uh, this effort at that time, and we've got people among us, our number today we could describe this as. Are they perfect? Well, no, they're not perfect. They have some faults, maybe fewer than most, but even at that, because of our great love and respect for them, and uh, because of their great desire to be what God wants them to be, we'll throw a veil over it, and we won't pay much attention to it. Now, we're not talking about doctrine, right? We're not talking about doctrine, but we're talking about matters of opinion, maybe a little character quirk here or there, and, and uh, you know, our love will cover those things because we're not talking about doctrine. And that, that's uh, uh, the mindset that, of course, uh, Barton W. Stone had here. Now, again, up to this time, Stone had demanded and his followers had demanded, we're going to be called Christians and Christians only. Of course, uh, the, the Campbell movement, they were either Reformed Baptists or sometimes they would be called Reformers. And that, that's what they went by at that time. But what is so interesting, and we see this really in the New Testament, they coexisted side by side throughout a lot of towns and areas, particularly in Kentucky. You would have the, the Christians and you would have the Reformers or the Reformed Baptists, and they coexisted because uh, the differences between them were so minor that it almost didn't matter. And they, they were able to work together, and over time, they began to understand each other a little more. They began to... <clears throat> see that uh, theologically there weren't very many doctrines uh, or very many things different, or at least uh, nothing they couldn't overcome or, or work through and come to the proper understanding of it. And so if you have two movements that are located like that and they're so similar, what eventually happens? They kind of just merge and, and just become one, don't they? And that's what happened uh, with these people. They saw such little faith, uh, difference in faith and practice that in 1831, they came together and they became a group. But it was would become something so much larger in scope than they even realized at that time. And so really, though this restoration, these restoration efforts had been working in different areas throughout the country in the United States, now, once they came together, they really became a force for good and uh, uh, for the spreading of the gospel. Any comments? Question? Now, like, we say, like I say, that was in 1831, <clears throat> but also in 1831, and this, this was happening throughout uh, this area, particularly in this Kentucky area, <clears throat> 
uh, Indiana, Illinois, places like that, uh, there was another man that Stone had met by the name of John T. Johnson. John T. Johnson. John T. Johnson was very interested in unity. He was very interested in what Stone was doing, what Campbell was doing, the things that were being taught. He recognized that they were the same things, basically, that it was the truth in accordance with the Bible. And he was very interested, but he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of influencers in the Kentucky area who were also very interested in this unity. And again, one of those men was Raccoon John Smith. Raccoon John Smith was a was an amazing individual. We're going to study uh, his uh, some of the things that happened in his life. Not edu- not an educated man at all by any stretch of the imagination. He was not an educated man, but he was extremely intelligent. He was uh, uh, very learned in the Scripture, and he was quite amazing. And so, uh, because of this very similar interest of these things, or these people throughout the area, uh, seeing that, that we're, we're coming to the same answer when we ask the question. And so, this idea of unity came together, and so these men got together and said, let's have a meeting. Let's get together, and let's uh, uh, hammer this thing out. And so they arranged this joint meeting of Christians and reformers. Okay? So you had the Stone Movement, you had the Campbell Movement, and they scheduled this meeting uh, for uh, on Christmas of that same year. So we're talking uh, 1831. On Christmas of that same year, it came on a Sunday. So they decided that they would arrange, and I think this is kind of a a hallmark of this movement, and it was for a whole lot of years, they just didn't come together for a Sunday meeting, did they? They came together three weeks before the meeting and had meetings all the way up until the meeting, right? I mean, that's the way it used to be in, in this nation 50 years, you know, 60 years ago, didn't it? 70 years ago, they'd have a, a an Arbor meeting. They might meet for two weeks. They didn't have a specific date. They said, well, we're going to end on this date. When people quit responding... Well, they moved on to the next location. And so they decided to uh, have a, a series of meetings that would last all week. Now, that all week became a series of joint meetings that lasted until 1835, four years later. They're still meeting because they came to some some understandings. But <clears throat> for that initial meeting... They had rented an old cotton factory, and uh, the first man to speak was John Smith. Now, let's not forget, <clears throat> they had still had some ideas that were, uh, we might say, a little odd. Okay? They still hadn't come all the way out of, uh, out of uh, the denominational mindset, but they were working on it. They were coming out of it. And so when they planned this meeting, they decided, said, hey, whoever's going to get up and speak, it's just going to be impromptu. Uh, you know, we're not going to have a, a set schedule. And so that may have had a little bit of the denominational leanings to it. 
I don't think really like uh, what we see today. You know, uh, a denominational preacher will, uh, you know, well known. They're well known for saying, you know, I'm going to get up and preach whatever the Lord lays on my heart, right? Uh, I don't think that's what these men were doing, but they were just allowing the situation to uh, prompt uh, Raccoon John Smith to speak, Barton Stone to speak. Maybe something was said, and Alexander Campbell had a way of addressing that, and so he would stand up and he would address that issue and he'd back it up by Scripture. So I think that's more along the lines of what they were talking about. But at any rate, Raccoon John Smith stood up, and uh, he was the first speaker in this old cotton factory, and, and when he finished speaking, he concluded with this statement. He said, let us then, my brethren, be no longer Campbellites or Stoneites, new lights or old lights or any other kind of lights, but let us come to the Bible and to the Bible alone as the only book in the world that can give us all the light we need. Well, that's a, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? You're talking about someone who didn't have any education. No education. <clears throat> in fact, at one time, Alexander Campbell said, that John Smith was the only man that I ever knew that education would have ruined him. You know. And so uh, that's quite a compliment coming from uh, Alexander Campbell. Uh, any comments? Questions? Now, anytime you get this many people together, <clears throat> even though they have similar ideas, there are going to be some things a little different. What often happens? Well, you have a little arguing or a little fussing. No one, you know, uh, seems like you can't ever get everyone on the same page. Now, that wasn't the case for this. Why do you think maybe that was? What's their foundation here? Christianity, right? Wanting to be what God wants them to be. And when we decide to live our lives based on excuse me, Christian principles, what are we more able to do? We're more able to interact with each other. We're more able to not allow things that do not matter to cause a problem. We're able to see the big picture and to see at the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And these periphery things, uh, they don't mean a lot anymore, right? <clears throat> uh, things that... Uh, get on our nerves and bother us at 20? Do they bother us at 75 as much? Not normally, right? Not normally. But of the general spirit which prevailed at that meeting, a man by the name of John Rogers wrote in 1844, now this is 12 years later, and still making an impact on people. He said... Uh, and he wrote this uh, in a book he uh, uh, penned by a man by the name of Ware about Barton Stone's life. <clears throat> he said, uh, No one ever thought the Reformers, so-called, had come over to us, or that we had gone over to them, that they required to relinquish their opinions or we ours. We found ourselves contending for the same principles of Christianity, and we resolved to unite our energies to harmonize the church and save the world. I entered into it upon principle. 
I think immense good has grown out of it that it, uh, that had it never taken place, our cause in Kentucky would be far in the rear of the position it now occupies. Is that a prevailing attitude in the world today? We found ourselves contending for the same great principles of Christianity. We resolved to unite our energies to harmonize the church and to save the world. It's hard to find. You can't find that among churches of Christ a lot of the time, right? You'll be in the same area, whether it's Chattanooga or whether it's Knoxville or Nashville or uh, you go to any other state, and you'll have an array or a myriad of uh, congregations that claim the name of Christ, and that's what you think you're going into when you go there. And they're teaching all kinds of things that are different from the Bible, right? Used to, when you traveled, if it said the Church of Christ on the door, you you were safe. You could go on in and you could worship, couldn't you? Brother, that's not the case anymore. And, there, and, and the church, instead of... Uh, uh, trying to uphold and defend, congregations try to defend themselves when they're teaching error or uh, people not getting along over matters that are of opinion, we ought to put our energies toward unifying the church and saving the world. And I think that's a wonderful statement that was made uh, here in 1844. Any comments, questions? <clears throat> well, as we study the life of Barton W. Stone, as, as any historical figure, uh, we begin to read about things they're doing and, and uh, a lot of things that are exciting. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we just kind of follow along, follow along. And, and what do we never hardly ever think of uh, concerning the, the individual? Well, we, we uh, begin to study Barton W. Stone, born in 1770-something. And now we're in 1830s, headed toward the 1840s. And it never really point sticks out in our minds that all this time, what's happening to Barton W. Stone? He's getting old, right? He's getting older. That happens to all of us, doesn't it? But we're reading about him in a historical context. And we're not thinking about his physical, necessarily his physical well-being. <clears throat> we just continue to read about him being a hard charger, going forward and doing the things. But all the while, Barton W. Stone's getting older. His health is not as good <clears throat> uh, as it used to be. And so uh, age and physical being begins to wire up on anybody. We know that well, right? Anybody who's... who's uh, 30 years old or older understands that I don't feel as good as I used to. You get up to be 70, you don't feel as good as you used to, right? And so as we look at so many of these things in his life that just begs for our attention, we overlook that he is getting older. When Stone was 62 years old, he moved to Illinois. He went to Jacksonville, Illinois, and this is in 1834, okay? And that was the home of the Kickapoo Indian. And at that time, it was considered the far west. Can you imagine Illinois being, anywhere in Illinois being considered the far west? <clears throat> well, it was at that time. 
And so uh, he was slowing down, and in, in the fall of 1836, he fell extremely ill. And uh, three years later, he suffered a stroke of paralysis, and he almost died. Okay, so that puts him at 65. Well, eventually, what comes to all of us came to Barton W. Stone. His death came on Saturday, November the 9th, 1844, at 4 o'clock in the morning. He was in Hannibal, Missouri. He was in the home of his daughter and his son-in-law and uh, uh, his daughter Amanda. Now, just prior to that, and this is, uh, I think, uh, uh, kind of gives you the measure of the man. Just a few days prior to this, guess what he was doing? He was preaching. He was delivering the gospel. And he met in Boone County near Columbia, Missouri, and he delivered what he regarded as his last discourse. And on November the 7th, he sent for a man, uh, Jacob Creeth Jr., also a restoration father. But Creeth couldn't come early, so but he did show up. He came later. And uh, when he got there, they sang a song together. They had a prayer. And Stone said to him, he said, Brother Creeth, I know in whom I have believed. This sounds very familiar because these are the words that Paul spoke. He said, I know in whom I have believed, in whom I have trusted. He said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. I know my Redeemer lives. All my dependence is in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ. At that moment, Barton W. Stone turned to his family for just a moment and he encouraged them to be faithful. And turning back to Creeth, he said this. Now, we're dealing with a man. As wonderful as he was, we're dealing with a man. He said, uh, Brother Creeth, if so great and so holy a man as Paul was afraid that he might be a castaway, may not so frail and poor a man as I fear too. He said, But my God is good and merciful, and my Savior is strong and mighty to save me. A few moments later, Brother Creeth stood up to leave, said his goodbyes. Stone called after him and he said, God bless you, my brother. I hope to meet you in heaven. And so sitting around with him was also his doctor, Dr. David Morton. Uh, he was a friend of his and he turned to Stone and he said, Bart, what do you think about this doctrine that you've been preaching all this time? Now notice what he said. I think this is an amazing statement. <clears throat> coming from someone, someone who was so highly regarded as Barton W. Stone. He said, on the whole, I believe it to be true, although we have made some mistakes. And he spent the rest of his time smoking his pipe and uh, conversing upon the love of God. And it was not long that he reclined his head over onto his son Barton's shoulder and he went on to his reward at 72 years old. <clears throat> Martin W. Stone uh, lived a life that I think we owe him such a great uh, uh, debt of gratitude.
He was buried in Hannibal, but later his body was uh, <clears throat> taken up and it was reburied, and I think rightly so, at Cane Ridge. And you can go to Cane Ridge to the meeting house today, and there's a monument where Barton W. Stone is buried. Tolbert Fanning, then you'll uh, recall that name. He was a restoration preacher, a great man. <clears throat> he, read, he wrote a statement uh, in the Christian Review on November the or uh, on December in December of 1844 called a good man has fallen and he said this and I don't think that uh he his statement was embellished at all he said the history of brother stone would be the history of the most important religious movement in the United States for nearly half a century to be sure his talent was not perhaps quite so brilliant as some others but his acquaintance with the Scriptures was extensive and critical, and a more humble, conscientious, and pious man cannot be found. If justice is ever done to his memory, he will be regarded as the first great American reformer, the first man who, to much purpose, pleaded the ground that the Bible, without note, commentary, or creed, must destroy anti-Christian powers and eventually conquer the world. Although I have heard Father Stone slandered and his views grossly perverted, <clears throat> yet never did I hear mortal man utter a syllable derogatory to his moral worth. A man more devoted <clears throat> to Christianity has not lived nor died, and many stars will adorn his crown in a coming day. What a statement regarding Barton W. Stone. We owe him more than we could ever pay. And uh, <clears throat> he was just a man, but boy, wasn't he a good man. And I appreciate all the efforts that he put forth in trying to help bring about what we know is the restoration movement. Any comments or questions regarding Brother Barton W. Stone or anything else we've talked about? Yes? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. J.C. was, uh, he never stopped preaching. He might not have been standing in the pulpit, but he never stopped preaching. You know, and, and we owe him a debt of gratitude. You know, we, we studied this restoration <coughs> movement, but has the restoration movement ever really ended? No, we're still involved in restoring New Testament Christianity, and that's never going to stop. That's never going to stop. And uh, we owe we owe great brethren like uh, J.C. Watkins, and I think, in my estimation, there's never been a finer, uh, more uh, wonderful person when it comes to being what God wants us to be. And so we owe him that for sure. But we can look back over a lot of these folks, folks we don't even know about that we're not going to remember their names, history. Didn't record them for us, but they, we owe them a lot. They still were doing the movements. That reminds me of a, uh, of a, uh, a missionary one time, uh, a particular missionary was telling me about this. He'd gone to India. And in India, they still have, uh, leper colonies because they still have to fight that disease over there. It's a little different, I believe, than the leprosy we read about in the Bible, but it's no less, uh, debilitating and deadly. At any rate, there was this leper colony, and uh, <clears throat> this uh, particular missionary was telling me about this. Went in, he was with some other men, and he walked in. There was a picture of this man on the wall 
like in the office of uh, where they were running this leper colony. <coughs> and someone had made a statement that, uh, you know, no one knows who he is. And no one knew his name at that time. It had been there for years and years and years. And uh, one man spoke up and he said, No, we may not know his name, but the people who put his picture up know his name or knew his name, and God for sure knows who he is. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, we read about James O'Kelly. We don't have a whole lot of information about James O'Kelly, but I think that he did a lot of good toward causing this restoration movement to move forward. You know, he missed it in a whole lot of places, but he put forth a good effort. Good comments. Anything else? Well, all righty, we're going to end here. We finished up, Brother Martin W. Stone, and what we're going to do next time is uh, we're going to pick up and we're going to begin our look at the Campbell movement, the Campbell movement, <clears throat> and uh, uh, some of the things that Alexander Campbell and his father Thomas did to help promote uh, New Testament Christianity. All right, thank you so much.